Good morning. Let's turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 15 again, and we're continuing on the theme of the resurrection. So we'll be starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20. But before I get there, almost a year ago, about around this time during Easter, a British news source conducted a survey in the UK. They surveyed over 2,000 people and asked them questions about the Bible. Some of the results of the survey were only 17% of the people believed the Bible word for word. Half the people surveyed did not believe in the resurrection. About half the people believed there is some form of life after death. The other half did not. The most shocking result from the survey, though, was that revealed that a quarter of professing Christians did not believe in the resurrection. The resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. Yet even in 2017, there are people who say they are Christian but do not believe in the resurrection. At the church of Corinth, there was a similar issue. There were people, there were teachers who came into the church and they were denying the resurrection. Paul says in verse 12 of that chapter, he says, How do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The resurrection is fundamental to the Christian faith. In fact, the whole Christian faith hinges upon the fact that either Jesus Christ died and rose again, or he, is, he died and is still dead. Last week, David talked in depth about what it would mean if Christ had not risen. What are the serious consequences that would happen if he did not rise from the dead? So if you were to say that Christ is not risen, David went over this in the previous part. He said that our preaching would be meaningless. Our faith would be pointless. Evangelists and preachers should just stop telling others about the gospel because, well, we're just telling them a lie. It would also mean that our faith is worthless, our sins would not be forgiven, and those who have died believing the gospel would be eternally condemned. This would be the hopeless, grim reality of the world if Christ had not risen from the dead. But then we came to verse 20. And we breathe a sigh of relief, and it says that, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Christ is risen. Christ rising from the dead means so much. It is so important. It's such an amazing truth. And if Christ had not risen, all those things we just talked about would have been true. But he is not dead. He is alive. And all those hopeless consequences are just the opposite. Our preaching is not empty, but it is meaningful and eternally valuable. Our faith is not empty, but it is founded in Christ Jesus that in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are not found false witnesses, but we are true witnesses of God and what he has done. And that is that he has raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. And our faith is not futile. We are no, we are not, we are no longer in sins because Jesus has died for our sins and has been raised to offer forgiveness for sins. So with all of that, now we come to verse 20, that now Christ is risen. We look at the positives to that. So we want to look at now what the resurrection accomplishes. What did the resurrection, what does it mean for us today? How should it change our lives? So I want to look at four different things of what the resurrection means or what it has accomplished. The first thing, Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. In verse 20, it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead 
and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the term first fruits, we don't use that term very often, but the term is an agricultural term. And the principle is basically that the first fruits is simply the first part of the harvest. It's the first part of the harvest, and it's an, with the promise and anticipation of more harvest to come, more fruit to come. And this idea is really seen in the Old Testament. And when the children of Israel were moved into the promised land, they were given allotments of land, and you would be given a portion of land. So now imagine this with me. If you were given a portion of land, you come to this promised land, and now you have this section and you want to start making some crops. You want to have some plants and fruits. And so you go out to your field and you start sowing some seed on sections. And as you go through your fields, it might take a few days or a few weeks because you have a really big section of land. And so now we fast forward a couple months later and the harvest time is coming. The harvest time is coming. And so there will be a portion of the field that's going to be ready for harvest first. This would be the first fruits. It's the first of the fruit of all the ground. And as the first part of the harvest came in, this would be an anticipation that, of what the rest of the harvest would look like. The first fruits represented and anticipated that there was more harvest to come. Now, Jesus being the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep means that there is more harvest to come. Jesus was the first to rise and many more will follow suit. And we'll get to that in, more in a moment. So the average Corinthian might have objected here and said, you know, I don't disagree that Christ rose from the dead, but how does Christ rising from the dead mean that I'll rise from the dead? How do we tie those together? How does one man's actions have an effect on the rest of us? Well, it seems that Paul answers that question in the next verse. Verse uh, 21 and 22, actually, says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Death was introduced into this world because of a man, with a lowercase m. But on the other hand, resurrection was introduced into this world with a man, with an uppercase m. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he was acting as our representative. All who came from Adam are in Adam. All people who have ever lived and are alive today would be considered in Adam. Everybody alive here is in Adam. We are all descendants of Adam. So when Adam disobeyed uh, God by eating the fruit, Adam was acting on our behalf. He was a representative of us. Adam's sin brought forth death. And God was very clear with Adam and Eve that on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. So Adam's actions brought forth grave consequences. Death. All through history, death has plagued us. Death is all around us. It's the surest thing. There is no escaping death. Ten times out of ten people will die, the statistics show. It's a sure fact of life. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man... Sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all, because all sinned. So Adam, he was kind of like a, a spoiled or rotten first fruits, because the resulting harvest was also spoiled and rotten, because we will all die. 
But we have a contrast here between Adam and Christ. In Adam, all die. But in, in Christ, all will be made, made alive. And so while each one of us are in Adam, not everyone is in Christ. That means that all who put their faith and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are in Christ. They will be made alive. And all people who are in Christ will be, will be made alive. Just as Adam's actions brought death to his descendants, Jesus Christ's actions brought life to his descendants. So Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Now let's move on to the second thing that the resurrection accomplishes. Christ's resurrection gives us hope for the future. We just talked about how in Christ we will be made alive, but how does it all take place? What's the order of events? In verse 23 it says, But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at his coming. Christ, again, is the firstfruits. He is the first to rise. Jesus rising from the dead is a guarantee that we will also rise from the dead. It means that just as Jesus Christ died physically, and was raised up from the dead, and with a new and glorified body, our bodies will also physically rise up from the dead and be given a new body that is fit for heaven. For Christians, this means the best is yet to come. Yes, there is death that we will face, and we will all face death, well, except for some, as Paul will tell us later. But death is not the end for the believer. Our lives don't end in the grave. Yes, our bodies may end up there, but the Bible says that when we die, our soul and spirit will be present with the Lord. And here, Paul tells us that our bodies have fallen asleep. It seems as though it sounds like our bodies are resting in the ground temporarily, but eventually they'll be awakened. That means our bodies won't even stay in the ground forever. Our physical body will be buried in the ground when we die, but our physical body will be raised up from the ground when Christ comes again. Christ was the beginning of the harvest, but there's more harvest to come. And that's us. We are the remaining harvest. We will rise from the dead just as Christ rose from the dead. Does that excite you? Does that, is that exciting to think about? Death will not conquer us and the grave cannot hold us. Christ is the guarantee that we will rise again in the same manner. Now you may be thinking, well, how can Christ be considered the first fruits? How was he the first from the dead? Because weren't there others who had risen before him? Yes, they did. There were others who had risen before Christ. Jesus raised the son of the widow of Nain from the dead. He raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. He also raised Lazarus, who had been dead for four days and was beginning to stink. How could Jesus be the first fruits if others had risen before him? But Jesus' resurrection was different. Jesus' resurrection was a final and complete resurrection. Jesus rose never to die again. All the others who were raised were dead from the dead were raised temporarily, but then shortly after that, many years later, they died again. We don't have them around today. But Jesus was given a glorified body and now is seated at the right hand of God. His resurrection was the first fruits in anticipation of the greater harvest to come. 
That means we will also be raised never to die again. We will be given a body that is completely different than the one we have here now. One that never gets pain, grows old, and it will last us for all eternity. So the first one to rise is Jesus. He is the first fruits. He sets the pattern. He sets the stage for those to follow. But we are next in line. Those who are Christ at his coming. And in this section, it really does look like it's Paul's mind is on the church. And this will happen when Jesus Christ comes back again. 2,000 years have gone since this time, and we're still waiting for Christ's return. He has not come back yet, but when he returns, he will rapture or he will snatch up the church, those who are Christ, those who have believed in him since the day of Pentecost. And I want to look at that just for a little bit in 1 Thessalonians of what will happen at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one, another's, comfort one another with these words. But the rapture, only, the rapture only includes the church. What about those who have died in faith before this or after this? Rapture is only for the first part of the harvest, but there's more to come. After the church has been raptured, there will be a tribulation period for seven years, and after that period, there will be another harvest. The resurrection of the tribulation saints. These are the saints who have been martyred for their faith during the tribulation time because they refuse to worship the beast. They refuse to um, get the mark on their forehead or their hands. And we also believe at the same time, the Old Testament saints will also be raised from the dead at this time. Revelation 20, verse 6, talks about their resurrection here. Blessed and holy is he who is part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. <clears throat> then in verse 26, of uh, this chapter, or verse 24, sorry. It says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who had put all things under him is accepted or excluded. Now when all things are made subject to him, the Son of himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The third thing the resurrection accomplishes is that the resurrection of Jesus leads to the restoration of all things. The resurrection of Jesus leads to the restoration of all things. Paul is looking towards a time when all things will be restored, resolved, and completed in Jesus Christ. 
once Jesus Christ has accomplished his mission, he will present it to God the Father, and that gives God all the glory. In verse 24, it says, then comes the end. So before I go to the end, I want to go back to the beginning, back to where there was no creation, and there was, before everything was created and made, and there was God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in, in perfect harmony together. Then God created the angels for his glory, but then Satan became prideful, and he led a rebellion, and many angels were cast out of heaven. Then Later on, God created the world and man, and he saw that it was good. But then Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, and sin entered the world. And now mankind would inherit a sinful nature. Even creation is out of order and is under a curse. But none of this surprised God. The fact, or the the fall of man did not come as a surprise or a shock to God. Before any of this, God the Father gave God the Son a mission or a job to do. They saw the mess that the universe would be in and that it is in now, and his desire is to restore all things back to normal, which gives God the Father glory. So Christ became a man and lived a perfect life. He entered into this world to do the Father's will. And Christ obeyed the will of the Father and went to the cross to die on the cross He suffered for the sins of the world. And in doing this, he was able to redeem man from their sins. And Christ's mission is to bring back everything to its rightful place, including creation and sinful man and all of Christ's enemies to be defeated once and for all. Once everything is completed and accomplished, then he will hand it over to God the Father. And Christ will be subject to God the Father. And that brings glory to God. And Christ will accomplish this during his thousand-year reign when he sets up his earthly kingdom and all will be subject to him. Christ will have all authority, all power. He will be king. He will be the rightful king. And all will be subject to him. And his, and his rule, and he will reign and rule until his plan is complete. And Satan, during that time, will be bound up. But then after the thousand years, he'll be released for a time and lead a rebellion. But then after that, quickly, the Lord will destroy Satan and he will be cast to the lake of fire where he will be in torment for night, every, all day and all night, forever and ever. Now after the thousand year reign of Christ, another resurrection will happen. It will be the second resurrection. And this one is for those who have died without surrendering their life to Christ. They will be raised to everlasting punishment. This is a resurrection you don't want to be a part of. In Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and whose face the earth and all in heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the books, the sea gave up their dead who were in it, and the death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his work. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There is life after death. 
But what you do in this life determines where you will spend eternity. Christ's resurrection made a way for salvation. In John 11, Christ says, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, he shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus came to this earth to give life to all men. He came to this earth for that purpose. He wants, he wants to give life and life more abundantly. And Jesus saw the mess of sin and death in the world and he came to rescue us from it. That's why he went on the, to die on the cross and suffer. And he was on the cross suffering in your place. He was then buried and then 30 days later he was he raised from the dead in order that our, he might give life to all who turn from their sins and believe in him. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And if you believe in him, then you are Christ, and you will be made alive when Christ returns as well. Now the fourth thing the resurrection accomplishes. Christ's resurrection is a motivation to endure suffering and to live sacrificially. Christ's resurrection is a motivation to endure suffering in this life and live sacrificially. In verse 29, it says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? This verse is definitely has been a challenge for many, and it is a challenge for me. But I'll first tell you that what it does not mean. It doesn't mean, and it doesn't teach, that people who are living today can be baptized for people who have died already. We don't teach that, and we don't believe that. We don't believe that someone can be baptized on behalf of somebody else. In fact, baptism has no part in salvation anyways. We are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Baptism is a result as obedience to God for what he's done for us and what he's commanded us to do. So it seems to be talking about people who have been martyred for their faith in Jesus. They believed, these people who are martyred were believed that Jesus died for their sins and was buried and rose again. So they were telling others about this great news that Jesus Christ was no longer dead, but now is alive. And other people would be witnessing this happening. They would be telling others about Christ, but they were being persecuted and being killed for their faith. And yet, more continued to believe the gospel. Now those two were in danger of losing their lives for believing the gospel. And this should have been a deterrent for new people to come to Christ, knowing that their life was at stake. But the opposite was happening. If you've ever seen one of those depictions of um, the British Army or the French Revolution fighting a battle, you usually see infantrymen. They're lined up in a, in a straight line, shoulder to shoulder, and they have their rifles and they're going to be shooting the enemy on the other side. And this always confused me because it just seemed such a uh, strange way to fight a battle. But the first row of soldiers would be definitely the first people to go. They would be the first ones picked off. And then after that, that row is gone, the next, the next people in line would pick up the rifle and take that position of the one who died in front of them. Then the soldier 
The soldier took you to his place knowing that he was fighting a worthy cause, though. And in a sense, this is what was happening with the believers. They were filling up the ranks. They were taking the position of people who had died before them. They had died for their faith, and they were now taking the position behind them. But why would somebody do that? Why would, why would, they, why would people continue to get saved in the place of those who had died before them? There must be some value to this. There must be some truth behind this gospel being preached. And it's because they knew that they will rise. It's because of the hope that Christians have. It's a hope that's based on certainty. It's based on the truth of God's promise. Knowing that we will rise one day and be in heaven with our Savior for all of eternity. In verse 30, it says that, And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's next argument really is regarding their physical safety. Self-preservation is, is a natural instinct that humans have. We, we want to make sure that we act in our best interest, that we remain um, to ensure our protection, to remain, uh, to ensure our survival. For example, if I was to encounter a bear, I would probably run the other way in order to get away from the situation as fast as possible. And it isn't a bad thing. It's a motivation to make sure that we don't die. But on the other hand, it seemed that Paul and, his, and the followers of Christ had a motivation to put their lines on the line. They were putting their lives at risk. They didn't run the other way. They were in jeopardy every day. Actually, it was every hour. It was a constant reality to them, the persecution that they were facing. Death, they were staring death in the face all the time. And Paul gives an example of this when he was in Ephesus and fought with beasts at Ephesus. And this could have been literally that he was thrown in a gladiator ring and fighting against beasts, but it's more likely that it was figurative where there is these, these men who are furious men of Ephesus that wanted to kill him. Paul's life was on the line all the time, and he recounts, Paul recounts some of the persecution he faced in uh, 2 Corinthians. He says, In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, and in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Paul is really saying, what is, this, what is the advantage to me for me to suffer this way, to go through all of these things? Why would I put myself through all of this if the dead do not rise? Instead, he says that I should live my life to the fullest, eating and drinking, for tomorrow we die. He should focus his life on the here and now. He should focus 
if this is all the life he's got, he should make the best of this life now because this is the only life he's got and to enjoy it while he's still alive. But Christ is risen from the dead and that changes everything. The main point is that this wouldn't make sense if the resurrection is real. People wouldn't be dying like this and putting their lives on the lines if the resurrection was not real. <clears throat> so Paul says in verse 33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Remember back the false teachers who were telling the Corinthians and teaching that the resurrection wasn't real, that the dead do not rise. There wouldn't be a bodily resurrection. And Paul is saying that this teaching is destroying your good, moral, your good morals. It's corrupting them. And how is it corrupting them? Well, people, people live what they believe. They will live by their convictions because wrong teaching, because of their wrong teaching, these Corinthians of this time were living as though Christ wasn't risen. Paul had been making this point over and again on how crucial it is that Christ has risen from the dead, but they were living as though Christ was still dead. They weren't living in light of the resurrection. They had adopted the lifestyle of the world and the false teachers who had taught them this, living a comfortable Christian life. And they needed their thinking radically changed. The resurrection should have a dramatic effect on the way we live our lives. Our message is urgent. We should be living our lives in such a way that makes, makes sense if Christ is risen. Or, sorry, let me say that again. We should be living our lives in a way that only makes sense if Christ is risen. Do we have that mentality today? Do we, by our actions, live as though Christ isn't risen? Do we live sacrificially to share the gospel at whatever, whatever cost it is to us? We may need to wake up to the reality that Christ is risen and what it has accomplished for us and that others can know him. There are those who don't know Christ. And if we think that we need to have the gospel, if we think about the need that they have to have the gospel preached to them, then knowing that we only have a short amount of time on this life, in our life, should, be a motivate, should motivate us to live in such a different way. Verse 34 says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We know that Christ is risen. We know that those who are Christ will be made alive. We know that Christ will reign over all. We know all of these things. All of this should be a motivation for us to holiness. It should stir up our hearts to have a compassion on the lost. 2 Peter 3 10 and 11 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and all the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? As we anticipate the coming of the Lord, how should we be in conduct today? As we realize that this world will be burned up and all those who don't know the Lord will perish, how will that, will, will that affect our witnessing? 
What things in your life are hindering you from serving the Lord sacrificially, like Paul and many others have done before? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for verse 20 that says, but now Christ is risen. Lord, we, without you being risen, Lord, we would have nothing. Our faith would be nothing. But Lord, we, we are <clears throat> so joyous and so glad that you have risen from the dead and what it means for us, Lord, that we will rise as well. Those in Christ will be given a new body and be in heaven with you for eternity. Lord, we Thank you for the truth of the resurrection and for what it means to us. Lord, we pray that we would live not in light of just this world and the temporary things of the world, but we would live in light of the resurrection that, that we have been, that we will be raised and with you for all eternity. Lord, we pray that we would share the gospel with others to let them know about what you have done. We pray, Lord, that we would have a motivation for godliness and um, to live holy lives before you. We pray, Lord, this in Jesus' name. Amen.